Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. True Hauntings is a Human Labs original podcast. The Rocks is a neighbourhood of Sydney adjacent to the harbour and central business district that has been a core part of the city almost since the founding of the Australian colony in 1788. Historically one of the city's slums, the Rocks was once replete with gangs, drunken soldiers and prostitutes. To add to its seedy past, the bubonic plague broke out in Sydney at the turn of the 20th century and the rocks was especially devastated, with thousands of the neighbourhood's buildings having to be demolished. Today the area sees better times, having been converted into a tourist destination, easy to access from central Sydney and brimming with historic sandstone buildings, many of which are open to the public for exploration. The Rocks shows you the way Sydney was for much of the 19th century, a hard place with a strong community and a big heart. Every building and street corner has a story to be told, some intriguing some sad and some amusing. In this episode of the True Hornings podcast, we pay homage to the first settlement of Sydney, the Rocks, an area you used to be able to smell before you caught a glimpse of it. It was the birthplace of Sydney, the Sydney we know today, and it is definitely filled with ghostly manifestations of its historic past. Hi, I'm Renata. And I'm Anne, and we welcome you to this episode of the True Hauntings Podcast. Anne and Renata have been investigating paranormal occurrences for the past 20 years. They have been at the center of various unexplained phenomena and have witnessed countless ghostly experiences. The duo now turn to high-profile cases that have attracted the eyes of the world. Between the dimensions we see and the dimensions we don't, supernatural forces are at play. Evil lurks within the shadows of our homes and in the darkest corners of our minds. It follows us like a shadow, forever. This is where nightmares become reality. This is True Hauntings. Welcome back to the studio, Anne. Thank you, Renata. I feel like we say that every week. <laughs> we do. We do. And uh, every week that we are here, it is a bonus to be here doing this amazingly incredible job. We are almost very closely up to our 50th episode. Can we you imagine are that? so close. Yeah. Wow. And it's just been over a year. So when we are actually in the studio recording this, we have been doing this for over a year. And we're hoping today's date is the 3rd of December because we've been trying to work out where we're up to with our podcast. So if all goes to plan and the podcasts are still going out on time, it should be the 3rd of December, which means we're going to hit the Christmas craziness. Yes, yes. Um, And look, uh, to add to that craziness, we actually have a wonderful tour that we are just about to get make it live with ticket sales. Oh, are we? What is it? Yes, it is the... 
Norfolk Island goes oh, to. <laughs> that's a big ticket, that one. That is a big ticket. So I'm just putting out the feelers out there to get you all intrigued. And uh, if you would like to come to Norfolk Island in 2022 with us, uh, head over to our Facebook pages and read all about it because all the information is there. Now, we took a group um, this year uh, when we could still travel to Norfolk Island. They yeah. absolutely loved it. And uh, that was my third or fourth trip to Norfolk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so this one will be my fifth. And uh, I can't get enough of the place. I know. it's And the people. The people are just wonderful. Oh, the people are just delightful. And it's a, a completely different way of living over there because they, they can only get ships in occasionally to drop off their food from the mainland uh, and they get some flights coming in. But during COVID, they didn't have as many flights coming in, so they had shortages on things. So yes. they all bartered with each other and somebody was running out of stuff, they'd look after them yep. and they'd find alternatives yep. and they would use whatever they could find yep. so resourceful yep. nothing gets wasted and when we were there in May they were expecting a barge and the barge got lost <laughs> didn't <laughs> it, arrive it, it floated off somewhere they had to go find it <laughs> they had to go find it retrieve the barge and they'd the run stuff. out of milk remember they'd run out of yes. milk yes <laughs> Everything was skim milk, wasn't it? Oh, it was oh. horrible. Yes, they had. But that's right. It's that's what true. you have to do. Yeah. Uh, it is truly one of those amazing island experiences. But the, the thing is that uh, it used to be a um, penal settlement, a mm-hmm. settlement for convicts. And uh, the history that is soaked into that land is absolutely amazing. And certainly time slips, um, apparitions, mm. The paranormal is sitting around every corner. And some of the most astounding table tipping sessions we've ever done. Really, yeah. Um, and look, we might slip in an episode on Norfolk Island before this one, which means it'll get pushed back to the, what was that, the 10th, 10th of December, um, so that you guys can learn more about it. Uh so they've probably already found that out by the time they listen to this. <laughs> Never mind. This is the joy of um, pre-recording. Uh, pre-recording. Uh, yeah. So that now we are going to finish up on the seventeenth of December for our recordings and take a little break over Christmas, and we'll be back on the seventh of. Uh, January, all going well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we disappear at that time, don't panic. We're coming back. Mm-hmm. No matter what happens, the the True Hauntings podcast will continue in one way or another. We will make sure. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just a few little bumps along the road there, and, and we'll uh, we'll sort it out. Yes, but we need to get on with the story. Going to be here forever. Yes, let's get on with the story of the rocks. The 18 of us huddled in the remains of the Undertaker's basement. There's no light save the moon's pale glow that filters down through the bone-white fingers of the tree forcing its way up through the warped cobblestone. The bony fingers of a tree reach up to claw at the night sky. It's warm in spite of the recent rain and the occasional fat drop of water plummets from the roof above and strikes my shoulder, the insistent tap of somebody with something important to say. The blonde girl to my right still seems shaken up from the huntsman sighting earlier. Somehow the distant sound of George Street traffic are completely muffled. We have been, as our guide had suggested as we'd entered this dark place, transported back in time to the early days of the Australian colony. The squeaking of the gate above ceases. For a moment, there's just the sound of our breath and the insistent tap, tap of the water. A thud from above. The blonde girl cries out. Our guide stands above us on a walkway. His long coat dances in a macabre dance in the wind, and his wide-brimmed hat pulled low over his eyes obscures all but his mouth as he begins to talk. This was once the basement of a very successful undertaker, he informs us. It was a lucrative business in the early days of the colony. 
we nod in agreement. Already tonight we've been told how much money was to be made in morgues or dead houses when Sydney was little more than hastily constructed houses huddled on the muddy shores of the harbour. The fireplace of a long abandoned kitchen beneath what is now a trendy block of apartments. He tells us the story of how the undertaker worked himself to death and was found dead in the very basement in which we now stand. It's not hard to imagine the ancient stone fireplace once dancing with flames as the undertaker in question hunched over a cadaver. I'm grateful that my imagination doesn't extend to conjuring up the rich stink of dead bodies that must have existed. Our guide continues to tell the tale of how a family later purchased the property and the girl began to hear the tap, tap, tap of somebody working in the basement. Oddly enough, it's not the undertaker who is rumoured to haunt the site these days, but the girl herself. Perhaps she never fully recovered from her brush with the other side. The rangers and security guards sometimes see her, the tour guide intoned as he points to a high window above our heads. In that window right there. We all crane our necks up to look at the window. Overhead, the moon is wearing a veil of clouds. But more often they see her in that window there. We follow his finger to the window. I stand with my back to him. A group of girls quickly shy away from the dark pain, but I peer eagerly in hoping to see the pale face of a haunted child staring back at me. No such luck. Oh, you found that soundscape for us today, Renata. Where did that one come from? Um, I had to dig deep and far. Oh, I and couldn't wide. find one. Yes. I really struggled. Yeah, that was actually a. Um, Sounds a, like a TripAdvisor yeah, review. Yeah, a TripAdvisor review. Yeah, yeah, I love TripAdvisor um, reviews. It was a TripAdvisor uh, advisor review from um, the Sydney Ghost Tours, mm-hmm. Sydney Rocks Ghost Tours, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I have a history with the people that ran the City Rocks Ghost Tours. Oh, do you? Is it one that we can tell without being sued? (laughs) Yes, because uh, when I decided to start uh, Newcastle Ghost Tours, uh, and I have to say that today, the day that we are actually recording this, is the 11th anniversary (gasps) and birthday of the birth of Newcastle Ghost Tours. Oh, happy birthday and congratulations. Thank you. Um, My baby has grown. (laughs) <laughs> to a teenage, a a young young. It's prepubescent. Pre, prepubescent <laughs> teenager. I don't think I'll live to the time that it's about twenty. To, about to sprout hairs. And um, I actually reached out to them and said, I, I sent them a message and I said, look, I'm starting. Um, uh, I would like to start a gas tour business here in uh, Newcastle. I really need to talk to someone who can set me in the right direction on how to go ahead and start this. And they actually said, why don't you come over and we'll sit down and have a chat. Wow. And so uh, a few weeks later, I arranged a meeting Mm -hmm. and uh, went to Sydney and sat down and had an awesome chat with them about the tours. And I'd had probably a couple more chats over the years. They actually took me uh, to a private tour of the rocks. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, with them both. Uh, They had um, a history of family who lived in the rocks um, as uh, original settlers. Mm, It makes it more personal. Yeah, so they had a a, a deep connection. And uh, they took me into places that the normal um, crowd would not see. And it was an awesome afternoon where I really got very personal and with with the rocks and been there hundreds of times, yeah. of course, as you have as well. Yeah, and we did a tour not long ago there, didn't we? We the, did. The walking tour. Yeah. Um, we went up to the observatory and um, there was a cottage there that 
had ghosts. There's so many ghost stories. Oh, just so many ghost stories. And and ju- because, because of the location, because it is such a significant place, the stories are so rich with brutality, violence, <laughs> and all those gorgeous things we love as, um, as people who love to read or listen about macabre events um, and t- true events. Yeah. Because so, the, the, the history is gruesome. Oh, it's, it's awful. Awful. And um, that leads me to my part That's in this. That's a segui. A segui yep. to the history. Yep. And uh, I'm going to tell you all a little bit about the beautiful history of the rocks. Now, just before we uh, move on, uh, I managed to sneak in for the 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 podcast awards uh, for the episode that appeared the other week. So I'm going to put a little bit of uh, plug in for the Australian podcast awards. There is still time to vote for us. I think the uh, nominations finish at the end of November. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you could pop over to the Australian podcast awards and then uh, you vote, go down to the box at the bottom and you type in true hauntings and you'll see a couple of suggestions pop up, but you'll see our ugly mugs on there. Click on that one, submit, and then they'll send you an email saying that, uh, did you actually vote for these people? And you just click, go, hell yeah, I did. And that will put a vote in for us for the Listener's Choice Award. And mm-hmm. look, guys, we'd really appreciate it. We've been told that we're only little compared to all the big ones that are out there, but we may be little, but we, we're big hearted and we, we want to put our hand up and say, hey, look at us. Me, 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 me. Yes. Anyway, sorry, I just broke your whole segui. No, that's okay. So let's hear about the history of the rocks. The rocks is the historic neighbourhood on the western side of Sydney Cove. It rises steeply behind George Street and the shores of West Circular Quay to the heights of Observatory Hill. It was named the rocks by the convicts who made homes there from 1788. But it has a much older name. Tala Walada, given by the first owners of this country, the Cadigal people. Tala Walada, the rocky headland of Sydney Cove, had massive outcrops of rugged sandstone and was covered with forest. The Cadigal probably burnt the bushland here to keep the country open. They lit cooking fires high on the slopes and shared meals of barbecued fish and shellfish. Perhaps they used the highest places for ceremonies and rituals. And down below, the Cadigal women fished in the waters in bark canoes. After the arrival of the first fleet in 1788, Talawalada became the convict site of the town. While the governor and the civil personnel lived on the more orderly eastern slopes of the tank stream, convict women and men appropriated land on the west. Now, I'm just going to go back to the tank stream. The tank stream was really, really an important um, piece of land mm. uh, because that's where the fresh water flowed. Yeah, and I remember when I was at school, that was one of the things that stuck in my mind was this name, the tank stream. Mm. Yes, and they not do, that much else stuck in my mind they from do school. Have a, <laughs> they do have a tour of the tank stream now, and you actually put your name down, uh, and you get chosen. I think once or twice a year, and they will take you down. The chosen ones. Mm. Oh, we should I, put our names down. I've already been. Oh, all right. <laughs> Was that with your other friend? I can't remember who I went with. Oh, well, they um, were very important to you that you can't remember them. <laughs> uh, but yes, I've been. It's very, very interesting. So we go back. Uh, Some people had leases, but most had not when they were appropriating their land on the west. They built traditional huts, they fenced off gardens and yards, established trades and businesses, built bread ovens and forges, opened shops and pubs and raised families. They took in lodgers, the newly arrived convicts who slept in kitchens and skillions. Some emancipists also had convict servants. After November 1790, large numbers of Aboriginal people came into the town to visit and to live, and apparently continued to live there over the 19th and 20th centuries. Orderly, grid-patterned streets were impossible on the rugged terrain of the rocks, and people moved about mainly on foot, so a web of footpaths led along and up the shelving ledges and from door to door. 
and we can see part of that today. It is like a big outdoor rabbit warren. Oh, it's crazy. Mm. We were, I think last time we were there, July last year, and then we've, oh no, this year we've been locked down ever since. Yeah. At the foot of the rocks in what later became George Street stood the walled jail and the town's first hospital. Clustered at the water's edge opposite were public and private wharves and the storehouses and elegant mansions of the early Sydney traders. Perhaps best known of these was the merchant Robert Campbell, who built his wharf and warehouses and an Indian-style bungalow on Campbell's Cove. An Indian-style bungalow? An Indian-style bungalow. Are we talking um, like... Uh, Indian as in this is going to be very culturally inappropriate but curries or Native American Indians (laughs) sorry I I struggle with words sometimes I don't mean to be inappropriate but (laughs) that's just my nature For convict women in particular, the rocks above could be a place of opportunity where they got their start in trade, buildings and land. The dynamic Mary Mary Ryby, who arrived as a convict in 1791, started out from a small house in the rocks. She amassed a fortune from trade and shipping, built a number of fine houses in Sydney and raised a large family. How unusual is that? Yes. Now, she appears in one of our notes our money. Oh, okay, yeah. And um, one of our uh, recent prime ministers is actually an ancestor of Mary Mary Ryby. Ah. Mm. Surrounded by water on three sides, the rocks was associated with seafaring, waterside workers and the maritime trades for most of its history. While Governor Macquarie had straightened the other streets of Sydney during the 1810 period, those of the rocks remained crooked and uneven. I remember you and I driving through the rocks trying to get to a hotel. I think there's a video clip of it up on TikTok. We'll have to dig it out and put it up where I think I actually ran a red light because we couldn't work out what the traffic lights were referring to Mm. because there were so many little windy, windy roads. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. It also remained a convict place for when the men from Hyde Park Barracks opened in 1819 were allowed out on Sundays after church. They run immediately to that part of the town they call the Rocks where every species of debauchery and villainy... Hang on. Villainy. They've just come from church. Villainy is practised. Where they're holier than thou and and telling everyone their sins and um, they're going to... they were made to go to church. Right, okay. They were made to go to church. Let's be honest about that. The the same thing (laughs) happened happened in Newcastle. They were made to go to church. And remember that most of the convicts that were out here... Uh, were Catholic because they they were coming from um, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. Mm-hmm. They were very much Catholic, mm-hmm. um, but the military was Protestant oh. or Anglican. Anglican. Yeah. So number one, they had to attend a church they really didn't believe in, and number two, they were made to attend church. Otherwise, they were flogged. Reminds me of my childhood. <laughs> Otherwise, they were flogged. Yeah, reminds me of my childhood too. And PTSD. PTSD. <laughs> oh, oh. And, um, yeah, they'd go for a flogging all the time, actually. Oh, I'm sure they did. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's why they went to the rocks, to get a flogging. <laughs> and there we have the ways. Oh, yes. Oh, and, um, yeah. <laughs> You do a quote somewhere about, um, yes, semen in the rocks. Yes, there was. There was, Uh, but I'll get to that story. Yeah. And uh, the seafarers. Yeah, the seafarers. (laughs) Oh, Lord. It's gone downhill. Yeah. Um, But yes, yes, the rocks was known for um, quite an interesting dark side. Right. Very. By 1823, about 1,200 people lived in the rocks. Now, if you've got to imagine 1,200 people and the area that the rocks actually is on. It's tiny. It's tiny. Yeah. Tiny. Uh, they were really living on top of each would, other. Would it be about four blocks, four to six blocks? If you think about the yeah. size, yeah. Yeah. And they've, a lot of land is now being reclaimed as well. Yeah. 
Um, and so it's right it under was, the Harbour Bridge. Yeah, it was a lot smaller. We've got a great photo of us with the um, we're standing in the rocks with the with the Harbour Bridge behind us, and we're, yeah, we've got in mm. that street there. And they had to demolish part of the rocks to get the Harbour Bridge in. Oh wow! We're going to talk about that in a minute too. Um, so most of the people that were there were emancipists, convicts, and their children. So in eighteen twenty uh, to eighteen thirty. The area was marked for expansion and consolidation of trade as the houses, stores and wharves of merchants and shipowners expanded right around Dawes Point to Millers Point and Cockle Bay, which is now Darling Harbour. On those places are multi-million dollar properties oh, now. Yes, and Darling Harbour, a few years ago, I still remember as just a working, trading, dirty In the early 1900s. Area. <laughs> Well, at least you put me in the 1900s oh, and not the 1800s. Kind. I know you've had a rough couple of days, so I thought I'd be kind. So after the end of transportation in 1840 and with the discovery of gold in 1851, immigration to the colony rose dramatically, resulting in an intense demand for housing. The rocks became a place where immigrant people found their first foothold, squeezed into existing houses and even converted stables. Uh, and if any of you have, uh, um, have the opportunity to arrive in Sydney, come out to Sydney, you must go to the rocks and you must go and see the size of the housing that was available. It will remind you of places in England and Ireland and Wales. Mm-hmm going back to that era yep. um, and we kind of find it incredible nowadays that people actually lived in such small um, housing little tiny boxes little tiny boxes and multiple family members yes. all in there together yeah because we all now like to live in large boxes <laughs> <laughs> Uh, The rocks became a place where immigrant people found their first foothold, as we said, squeezed into existing houses and even converted stables. Developers and residents began subdividing the large old yards and built rows of small plain terrace housing. The older houses often remained standing at the rear. It was a landscape of rapid urban growth, close packed at first ill-serviced with a multiplying maze of lanes and blind courts and severe problems of water supply, rubbish and sewerage disposal. Mm -hmm. Street making, paving and drainage works were carried out constantly from the 1850s, but progress seemed to have been slow and results quickly worn down and blocked up. Sewer lines were installed down the main streets in the 1850s but not every house was connected. Many houses were stone. So it was a, hang on, it was an open sewer. Yes. It just ran out. In, yes. Oh. Yes. Yep. 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 And if you go on a history tour of the rocks, which again, I so recommend. Yeah, So it. recommend do a daytime history tour. They will show you all of these places. So sewer lines were installed down the main streets in the 1850s, but not every house was connected. Many houses had stone cesspits and some had nothing at all. And that's why I said, right from the very beginning, you could smell the rocks before you saw it. Wow. In in 1843, convict gangs were put to work on a cut right through the ridge at the heart of the rocks, extending Argyle Street to connect Sydney Cove with the booming area of Darling Harbour. Earlier, drays and people had to take the long way round north or south. The rubble stone from the Argyle cut was carted away to build an even larger project, the first stage of Circular Quay. But work was slow, and when the convict labour force dwindled, the Argyle cut project stopped. It was eventually completed using paid labour and and gunpowder in 1859, and bridges connected the severed streets above in the 1860s. The rocks became an increasingly working-class area. It had also been a place of fearful fascination for outsiders. It was always Sydney's other place. Mm -hmm. Its proximity and links with the waterside gave it exotic and threatening sounds, smells and sights. Among its population were relatively high numbers of immigrant people, including Irish and Chinese. Lower George Street at the foot of the rocks became Sydney's first Chinatown. The area hosted seamen from all around. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to giggle every what? time you say that word because I'm just a grotty person. My mind is in the gutter permanently, so I'm just going to cackle. I'm sorry. 
mums and dads you can explain to the little kiddies why Auntie Anne and Auntie Renata are giggling. <laughs> I might have to call them seafarers from now on I so I can control that. myself. <laughs> yeah. oh, Do you know my father was a seaman? Did I mention that to you? He was in the Navy for a while. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Uh, the area hosted seafarers from all around the world, some of whom took a liking <laughs> to the place, married local women and settled there. I reckon some of them had multiple wives in multiple oh, ports. Absolutely. The rocks was old Sydney. That's Associ- the trouble with seamen. <laughs> Stop it! Okay, breathe. Do I need to leave the room? (laughs) Welcome to the show, everybody. I'd like to welcome the new uh, Grand Poobah Parastalkers that have joined us on our Patreon page. We appreciate you coming on so much, supporting our work, bringing laughter to the world. The rocks! was old Sydney, associated with the shadowy, shameful convict past. It seemed increasingly out of kilter with the self-conscious... <laughs> oh, it's going to be one of those days. Oh, all right, I'm going to have to pause till we get ourselves together. Hang on. All right, we're back. No, poor Renata couldn't see out of her glasses. She fogged up, but we're ready now. <laughs> Apologise for that break to intermission or what a transmission. That's it, transmission. The Rocks was old Sydney associated with the shadowy, shameful convict past. It seemed increasingly out of kilter with the self-consciously modernising city. Even that great improvement, the Argyle cut, looked increasingly dark and menacing as the decades passed. When the first epidemic of the bubonic plague broke out in Sydney in the 1900s, all eyes turned to the old working-class waterfront neighbourhoods. The rocks in particular were seen as a source of the contagion. The disease was carried by fleas on the rats which came ashore from ships. So people who worked in these areas were particularly vulnerable and they bore the brunt of the disease. However, the plague affected many other areas of Sydney too, and of the 303 victims of the plague, only five were from the rocks. Oh, they were made from stamina, those people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, made from the rocks? (laughs) (laughs) Those fleas were biting those people and and dying. (laughs) That's all I could say. Wow, that's, that's incredible. So ironically, there have been great improvements in urban conditions and amenities the decade before, and the infant mortality rate in the city wards had already dropped considerably. Nevertheless, the plague was a catalyst for the next major development in the area's history. The state government resumed the whole of the area around Darling Harbour in the 1900s, and the residents became public tenants. Over the next 20 years, the entire waterfront was demolished and rebuilt. In the residential areas, hundreds of houses were demolished, so accommodation became still harder to find for waterside workers' families who had to live near the wharves. Neighbouring Millers Point was rebuilt with extensive public housing, some of the earliest examples in the whole world, although in the rocks the number of new houses fell far short of what had been destroyed. From 1902, the rocks was repeatedly scarred. Whole streets of houses were demolished to make way for straighter street alignments, for wharf developments, for the Harbour Bridge approach in the 1920s and early 1930s, and for the Carl Expressway in the 1960s. I used to call that the Car Hill because it's C-A-H-I-L-L, and I realised it's Carl. But the local government did not disappear. Sorry, the local community did not disappear. Families stayed in one house over many years, even passing leases on to their children. In some streets, such as Atherton Street, children grew up surrounded by grandparents, aunts, and uncles. Which is lovely, unless you hate your family. People felt they belonged in these houses and in the rocks. This sense of place would have 
important outcomes. The completion of the Harbour Bridge also meant that the rocks was bypassed by traffic and trade and became a sort of forgotten enclave. Mm. In December 1960, the state government advertised the whole area for sale in the New York Times and apparently there were no takers. Oh, but they're kicking themselves. Oh, my (laughs) goodness. Isn't that crazy? Wow. So in 1970, the rocks was placed under the control of the new semi-autonomous body, the Sydney Cove Redevelopment Authority, headed by Colonel McGee. Colonel McGee was charged with the efficient relocation of residents often to outer western Sydney and with redeveloping the area as a high-rise commercial precinct. And I know this might sound really dry to people that are listening to it at the moment, but this battle of the rocks was one of those flashpoint moments of the rocks that changed everything. They wanted to get everyone out of the rocks. They had a new idea for this place and everyone who had lived there from generation to generation was literally told they must get out. They must get out. Fancy fancy being told that. So uh, this stage, by, by this stage, many local people did not want to move, nor did they want the rocks destroyed. The rocks resident action group led by the determined and eloquent Nita McRae protested and lobbied. And when this proved ineffective, it asked the Builders Labourers Federation to help by placing a green ban on the area. Between 1971 and 1974, the green bans resulted in a bitter and often violent struggle, which became known as the Battle of the Rocks. And I have to say, many people lost their lives in this battle or disappeared under interesting circumstances. It was an interesting time in Australia. Yep. They were successful in defending the historic fabric from the wreckers ball and bulldozer, but the rocks had to pay its way. And so rather than remaining a working class neighbourhood, it was redeveloped by the Sydney Cove Redevelopment Authority as a historic attraction for tourists. Thank heavens. As the local population aged and passed away, houses became shops, cafes and galleries. The old Argyle Bond stores had already been converted to the Argyle Arts Centre with its heady scent of handcrafted leather, soap and candles. So after nearly 200 years of official suppression, the name was finally embraced in 1974 and listed with the Geographical Names Board as The Rocks. Publicity campaigns promoted tourism with the famous slogan, The Rocks, birthplace of a nation. Wow. What a great way to wrap that up. Yeah. I've got the hiccups. Yeah. Okay. Um, I found <laughs> that in, in one, one foul swoop um, in one of the amazing um, sites uh, where you can find information, um, rural historical information about the rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess I felt it was really important to go right from the very beginning uh, and the, the tragedies uh, and the circumstances that embraced the changes uh, that you would now see when you go to the rocks because it's very it's very modern. It, it's very clean. Yeah. It's, it's very sanitised. It's very touristy. It's very touristy. Um, it is nothing like what you would have seen a Hundred and fifty or two hundred years ago, no. um, the remnants and the the like they say the historic fabric, the historic imprint is there. They've done a really good job at um, uh, mapping areas and having signposts of what used to stand there. Uh, you have to look for it. Um, and I think if you are a history buff, you will find it very, very intriguing. The wonderful thing about it is that there are many, many tours available day and night um, at all different price points. And the ghost tours are something else. You you must go. Yeah. You must go. And many people have an experience on the ghost tours. Absolutely. And this is where you, you now come Sagui in. again. Yes. Well, this is one of these topics that I actually... Um, struggled to find original information on. Mm. It's the same stories that are repeated over and over, but some of the stories are just fascinating because, mm. as you were mentioning, um, the during the seventies, and I was saying that there was that was a strange time, is because we, um, 
well, not only the seventies, but earlier. We have a TV show called Underbelly, and I think it was yes. called Razor. Was it Razor Gang mm-hmm. or was Razor something? Mm-hmm. Um, and that will show you a lot of what was going down in Sydney at that time. And we've got some stories related to that, but also um, there was a great movie that shows a lot of the rocks. Is it playing Beatty Bow? Yes. Yep. Yes. Uh, so if you want to have a look at what the rocks would have looked like, but it's still a bit cleaned up in those versions, uh, you can check it out. But um, there is several locations that have great ghost stories. So I figured, you know, let's just do them. Yes. Yep. Whether we can prove them or not is another thing mm-hmm. because it's so far back in time. Mm. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But the first one I want to mention is Cadman's Cottage, mm-hmm. which is 110 George Street. Now, I remember we went and looked at that. Yes. It's down in a little plaza and this little house just sort of tucked away that somebody's managed to save from the urban sprawl. Yep. Um, it was originally built uh, as a barracks to the... Uh, to house the naval coxswains, mm-hmm. <laughs> got seamen and coxswains, 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 uh, and their families until it was taken over by the water police in 1846. Mm-hmm. Two years before that, there was this lovely gentleman called Jean Videl who was caught outside trying to dispose of a body. Mm. And it was the body of his boss, Thomas Warren. Um, whom he had murdered the night before. But the story that goes with this is quite crazy. So apparently the Videl and Mr. Warren were arguing at Mr. Warren's house and uh, Warren demanded that he leave or he would stab him with an old sword he had that was hanging <laughs> on the walls As inside his house. So the Videl left um, before rage overcame him. And you'd think, okay, he's gone to cool off. That's good. We'll, we'll not have a murder here. But no, he snuck back during the middle of the night and hit Mr. Warren over the head with an axe, killing him. Mm-hmm. I'd say he had a bit of rum up the road. You reckon he might have had a rum or two? Yep. Uh, so then he thought, oh, jeez, now I've killed him. I've got to get rid of the body. So, of course, what do you do? You just hack off all the limbs. <laughs> Yes. And then you take him to your your house and you try to burn him in the fireplace. Yes. Mm-mm-mm. But apparently there was a slight issue. 
Yes. Um, it, I'd say Mr. Warren must have had a little bit of extra chubbiness to him. Um, <laughs> and when he put the, the put the body in the fireplace, um, the fat on the flesh caught fire and set fire to his chimney. Oh, no. <laughs> no. So Videl then had to put out the fire by pouring buckets of water. And now he's gone, oh, no, I've got this half-burnt body. What the hell am I going to do with it? So I thought, oh, well, one thing to do, I'll just cut it down into smaller pieces. So he's chopped it up a bit further and stuffed it all into a chest. Then he's taken the the chest down to, oh, hang on, no, he had to clean up all the mess, but some of the problem was that the blood had seeped through to the apartment below. Oh, no. Uh, oh, so then that's when goodness. Videl's realised he's got to get this chest out of here. He's got to try and work out what to do. And if you look at the houses back then, the, the wooden floorboards had gaps yeah. in them and yeah, yeah, it would not have been. They're watching this blood drip going, oh, <laughs> having a party upstairs. Anyway, they've taken the chest down to the jetty, um, which was by that time known as Sydney Harbour. And he then approached a boatman and said, would you take this chest out to the harbour and just dump it in the water for me. Now, by that stage, apparently the chest had a bit of a pong to it. <laughs> it was a little bit whiffy. Uh, and when the boatman did uh, say, what is that bad smell coming from the chest? He said, oh, no, that's just an old pig carcass that I've chopped up and popped in there. Don't you worry about that. Apparently the boatman was not fooled and told the police. So once uh, the police came on the scene, it was worked out what he had done and he was uh, charged and hanged several months later after being convicted. But Cadman's Cottage is now a historical site which is near the overseas passenger terminal and hosts light shows during the Vivid Festival. Mm. If you've not heard of the Vivid Festival in Sydney, V-I-V-I-D, go and check it out on the interwebs because it is spectacular. It is. It is. They they throw lights on um, some of these uh, major sites in the city, and uh, it's very pretty. Thousands of people come out at night, and um, there's there's walking tours and things that you can do, and takes you around the Sydney to all of the the lit buildings. Yeah. So they attempted it very badly mm-hmm. a couple of years ago in Newcastle. Oh uh, yeah. No, we don't have quite the same budget, <laughs> probably. It was awful. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so the, there's supposed to be the, the ghosts lingering around that area for Cadman's Cottage, and no wonder with that sort of history that goes with it. Yes. Um, now, there, I, I have a couple of stories which aren't necessarily ghost stories, but mm-hmm. they're really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a place there, 102 to 104 George Street, which is known as the Dead House. Mm. Now, you mentioned that in your stories, mm-hmm. didn't you? Mm-hmm. So this building was actually the site of inquests um, for small, bizarre murders and things that were happening in the area. Uh, And there was one particular interesting one, which became known as the Shark Arm Murders. Mm. Bet you didn't know sharks had arms. No, that's true. I didn't. Yeah. All right. So this is a great story. It's really bizarre, but this is all to do with the the underworld. And this was in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there was this lovely gentleman called Ben Hobson who owned Coogee Aquarium and Swimming Baths, which is now the Coogee Pavilion. Um, apparently he caught a tiger shark and he thought he'd pop it in there to... to attract some visitors and Mm -hmm. they all came in to have a look at it but uh, on Anzac Day um, they had a big crowd in there having a look at the shark and all of a sudden the shark was unwell and it started to convulse and vomited it up a human arm (laughs) as you do (laughs) oh no imagine having the kitties there and this shark's going and then spits up an arm. I didn't realise that ha- that happened in a public venue. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So the, this, it was the left arm, and it had a tattoo of two boxes fighting and a rope attached to it. Uh, the most interesting thing about it, which is why the police took it up, is that it wasn't bitten off. It had been cut off. Oh, so it was identified that the victim was Jimmy Smith, who was an English boxer from Gladesville, uh, who had been running a billiard saloon in Roselle and working at Tattlesses, mm-hmm. as you do, Tattersells. That's a um, Tattersells club. Yeah, yeah, a club that we we still have here in Australia today. 
So on the side, he was working for a crime boss whose name was Reginald Holmes. Um, apparently, his family used to be, uh, build speedboats and things like that to deliver cocaine around <laughs> Sydney, as you do. <laughs> Now this oh. this Holmes was a great character. He also dabbled in insurance schemes. This is what happens when you send convicts to Australia. They're just going to keep on doing what they're doing. But they're um, multi-skilling. They are. They they're are. pivoting. They're multi-skilling and pivoting. Yeah. So one of the things that they did was um, he had a boat called Pathfinder, which he over-insured and then deliberately sunk. So this was some of the schemes that mm-hmm. they would come up with. Mm-hmm. They also apparently like to forge some checks um, and laundered money through Smith's Saloon that we mentioned up earlier about the, the billiards. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had a little bit of a falling out and then Smith started to blackmail Holmes. Mm, I think that would be the downfall. Mm-hmm. So there was a bit of a card game happening in Cronulla with uh, forger Patrick Brady on the April 7th of 1935. So when's Anzac Day? 25th? Mm-hmm. Mm, so that was the gap where the arm was held <laughs> for the poor shark. Uh, so uh, apparently the they killed him then and um, they dismembered him and... Uh, Shake shark ate the arm, so it was pretty easy to work out with the police that that's the the people who had done it because they traced his movements. Um, he there's a quote here from a, a taxi driver who said he was dishevelled. He had a hand in a pocket and wouldn't take it out. I wonder if it was the arm. <gasps> Oh wow! It was clear that he was frightened, so that's that's their evidence. Um, but the police didn't have a body, which made it a difficult conviction. Um, but they did decide to arrest home and try to sweat him out. He denied everything, of course. Uh, but once released, what does what do you do when you get released? You head to the pub, um, and you you have a few drinks. Uh, and apparently, he got himself so worked up that he went and shot himself. But he actually didn't manage to do it properly and just uh, knocked himself out. <sighs> so uh, then they chased after him out to sea and he eventually gave in and admitted that yeah, that, that had all happened. Um, he said to Brady, uh, they were talking about keeping the arm to blackmail Holmes and that's why it didn't make it out to the sharks apparently that, that early. Maybe that's why the shark had a bad tummy. Mm-hmm. It was an older bit arm. Off. <laughs> it was a bit off. <laughs> They had refrigerated it. Gotta look after the meat. Um, but there's theories that there was a hitman to kill him, or he he the sorry that the the guilty guy had hired a hitman to kill him, but it's more likely that he just did it himself. Anyway, um, he was never actually committed because apparently they Brady walked free and no one was ever convicted of the murder. Smith was later revealed to be a police informant. Wow. So there was a whole lot of stuff mm-hmm. going on in there. But it, it's not a ghost story, but, geez, it was a, a funny one. Oh, my goodness, yeah. All right, I have to try and find your ghost story now because uh, I've got pages here. I'm going to have to cut it down because otherwise we're going to be going forever. All right, let's head into Reynolds Cottage. So Reynolds Cottage is 28 to 30 Harrington Street. Irish blacksmith William Reynolds bought two cottages for uh, £100 in 1830 and built a third one three years later. He was a former convict, originally sentenced to lifetime transportation for highway robbery, arriving in Sydney in 1816, age 32. Amassing a property portfolio as a free man elevated his standing so much that his obituary called him a man of considerable property, highly respected amongst his brother tradesmen. However... Things did not go well for the Reynolds family in the next decade as two of them suffered dramatic deaths. Reynolds' son William Jr. died an agonising death after accidentally being shot in the leg while pigeon shooting in Surrey Hills. The leg became badly infected Mm. and was amputated in the cottage without anaesthetic. Oh, no. (gasps) And he still died later. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so he said his ghost is uh, still said to haunt the cottages along with that of his father who died after falling off a ladder Mm. in the home just three years later. The building's passed on to his son, Maurice, and is now home to several shops. I love how they've got the addresses of this, so you can go and (laughs) check them out. 
Anyway, let's get on to this one. This is Merchant House, which is 37 George Street. Now, this house is considered to be one of Australia's most haunted, with visitors claiming to see a murdered housewife. Oh. Oh. Now, I actually quite like this story because it gives me hope as an old chook. Um, sometimes, uh, sometime in the mid to late 1800s, uh, a rich businessman chased and strangled his wife after finding her in bed with another man. Oh. Scandal. The hussy. Uh, apparently, um, quite a few people have sightings of this old woman. <laughs> oh, I like it. She's an old girl who's out there still riding the ranges, so to speak. <laughs> I wonder what classifies old. I mean, I she know. could have been 35 for I know. all we know. Oh, my God. <laughs> In those days, that would have been old. <laughs> Wow, I just, I loved it. Anyway, um, believers in the ghost say that she can be heard walking on the stairs and some have even claimed to have seen her. Um, As I said, there's been quite a few sightings. A lot of the rangers go there late at night, but often what they see is an old lady. Uh, This was from one of the Rocks Ghost Tours people, Wes. And they've got a photo, which they've uh, popped up, and we'll try to get that onto the internet for you, of supposedly the ghost with a uh, a shiny, bright necklace around her neck. Um, I had a look at it. Mm-hmm. At first, I couldn't work out what the hell they were looking at because there was a lot of light flares and things that were going on, and there was this little tiny pinpoint of light. And then I looked around that, and then you could see that there was like rays of light and possibly an orb, which is not a ghost, an orb from the, as I said, there was a lot of lights coming mm-hmm, in. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of looks interesting, but the shiny necklace is is just a light refraction. It's not not a shiny necklace, but the rest of the photo is interesting. Um, so they also claim that this has the scariest staircase in Sydney as a regular stop on the ghost tours. Now, do you know what used to terrify me about those staircases? Because I'm pretty sure we went up that staircase in our Rocks Ghost Tour. Do you know what terrifies me, Renata? What? I have size 11 feet. <laughs> and those those stairs are made for tiny size 6 feet. Yes. Yep. I have to walk sideways. I'm a big girl and it terrifies me. Mm. I I can't do stairs now because I just terrify me. I do them, but, you know, they frighten me. Um, there's also talk about a tradesman who has now refused to work on the place. Uh, he said, I'm... I was the only one there. There were doors slamming shut and I checked. I'd closed them all, yet they kept making loud slamming noises. The place freaked me out. Mm. Now, we know how closely built together those buildings are. It could have been from a different house and he's just freaked out because, yeah, it's that area. Oh, boy, we're running out of time. So um, there were some other awesome stories in there as well but i'll skip over those and we're going to head to the russell hotel Mm. we might include one or two of the stories that you haven't read um on our facebook page page. yeah Yeah. the patreon page we'll do that um so this is room eight oh the russell oh we've been there a couple of times and uh the the room that they're referring to has a queen size bed in it and once again we were forced to share which we we have to suffer that just so that we can get to stay in these haunted rooms um we we can't actually go into too much detail because we might have a little video coming out about that later Mm -hmm. uh but it was a great location Mm. let me tell you a little bit about it first so this is room eight particularly at the russell hotel and it's known as the most haunted hotel room in australia i love how everyone claims theirs to be the most haunted (laughs) absolutely said to be inhabited by the ghost of a sailor Mm -hmm. i won't say that other word (laughs) that was murdered by a prostitute yes Yes. The ghost supposedly only appears to women sleeping alone, recreating the circumstances of his death. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he didn't take to two old ladies sleeping in the bed, though. He didn't come and. Didn't come. <laughs> <laughs> I need to finish that sentence. It didn't visit us. No. <laughs> 
Uh, employees have said that they feel like they are, were walking through a cobweb, like they were being watched, or an instant chill in the room as if a fridge door had just been opened. Now, cobwebs is quite a common sensation that mm-hmm. we get reported uh, at investigations, and we don't know whether it's some sort of energy web or is it some sort of ectoplasm mm-hmm. or something. But, I mean, ectoplasm is supposed to be produced from the a medium. Mm-hmm. It's not just something that randomly appears. Unlike the ghost hunting TV show. Anyway, won't go there. Um, so there is definitely a change, though, when you go in um, and you sort of get to that point where you're walking through a space that has this kind of misty feeling, as though you have walked through a spider's web. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, another report here from some eyewitnesses said that two girls on separate occasions have said they woke up to a sailor standing at the end of the bed looking at them. Yes. There's nothing like semen at the end of the bed. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Oh, we did discover something, though, while we were there. But are we allowed to reveal that now? Well, look, it's, it's, it's something that is... I guess public knowledge, mm-hmm. and that is that the, the hotel is connected to the pub next door. Yes, which is the Fortune of War. Fortune of War. Fortune of War, mm-hmm. and we got to visit there as yeah. well. And we actually saw some really interesting photos that was taken by I think it was Attila Caldi and Beth Darlington. Yes, where they have some pictures of. Uh, ghosts and mm-hmm. one of them looks like a maid. Yes. I don't know if we've got permission to repost those photos, but we'll try to find them for mm-hmm. you. They are fascinating. But this doorway in between um, and the uses of the rooms in uh, the Russell, mm. considering the times mm-hmm. and some of the things that would happen in those rooms, mm-hmm. would certainly allow you to believe that something like this is absolutely possible. Yeah. And wasn't there an old hospital that used to be there yes. beforehand yes. as well? Yep. So yep. it's got layers upon layers. Layers. Yeah. layers. Um, so apparently they had a reporter that went and stayed in that particular room and she was jolted awake at 4 a.m. Uh, between the hours of 4 and 5.30, there was a completely different feeling in the room which hadn't been there before, she said. I wanted to get up and go out of the room but felt completely incapable of moving a muscle. I felt intense pressure on my chest like something was pushing down my diaphragm. I couldn't even lift my head off the pillow. It was a shock and made it hard to breathe. Russell Hotel is one of the oldest buildings in Australia. Mm -hmm. It is sandstone. It is very maze-like. There's ups and downs and Mm -hmm. stairs, half Mm -hmm. staircases, and you go around a corner and there's little hidden doors and um yeah it's it's quite an amazing place and if you ever get the chance to stay there do it they've done a beautiful job restoring it yes. uh, it's not grotty at all no and um, it's 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 delightful they really treat you really well in there and apparently it used to serve as a hostel for the sailors that docked in sydney harbour then a hospital once a bubonic plague hit before it was restored into the beautiful boutique hotel um uh so yeah that that was some really interesting stories i'll have to put my link up to my notes for that because i forgot to write them down bad me uh but yeah the rocks ghost tours do run nightly ghost tours there at 45 dollars per person so it it helps them to keep telling the stories Mm -hmm. of the location is it haunted yes yes (laughs) yes um i had some really weird experiences up um on observatory hill and that's another wonderful place i didn't even get to there (laughs) yeah it has a a, um one of the oldest working telescopes in the world Mm -hmm. there um and they take you in a couple into a couple of places that are associated with the history of the place um there's the hanging tree as well when you go up around that area as well and that's an awesome story where they used to hang people and keep them hung um, so that others could walk past. Maybe we need to do another whole pod, 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 podcast, podcast on the, the upper rocks. Up, upper rocks, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, look, it is a, an absolutely fascinating place and I hope that um, anyone ever considering coming to Australia for the first time or coming back to Australia will really consider coming to Sydney and uh, spending some time in the rocks. 
So thank you for joining us on this week's episode of True Hauntings. I hope you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes if you get the opportunity. Uh, if you'd like to become our Patreon supporters and help us keep doing what we're doing, just look for Anne and Renata, frightfully good on Patreon, and you will find us. We have links on our Facebook pages and all that sort of stuff. Thank you guys for all the beautiful comments that you have left supporting us and the work that we do. We appreciate it and we'll see you all on the dark side. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of True Hauntings. If you like the show, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. For more on Anne and Renata, follow at Anne and Renata on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Or visit their website, www.anneandrenata.com. True Hauntings is a part of the Human Labs Podcast Network. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.